This is a whole observatory podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Cody Halfmoon, and in this episode of Star Stuff, we will be talking about one of the most important women in astronomy, arguably, Dr. Vera Rubin. Uh, she's also known as the mother of dark matter. And this is your host, Haley Osborne. Today, we are joined by scientists that have actually worked with Vera Rubin and are going to share some amazing stories with us today. So we've got uh, astronomer Casper von Braun, who is on a recent episode about the sci-fi book Project Hail Mary. Hello, Casper. Hi. It's very nice to be here again. Thank you. Yeah. And Alicia Weinberger? Yes, Alicia Weinberger. Okay. Good. Hello, Alicia. And uh, thank you both so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I thought we could start off by embarrassing both of you and reading your bios, also just for good context. Yeah. And uh, so if we miss anything, jump in, correct us. But uh, Dr. Von Braun is uh, an astronomer, an adjunct astronomer here at Lowell Observatory. He specializes in stellar astronomy using a combination of, I'm going to mess this up, in- interferometric and spectrophotometric data. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I'm off to a good start. Yeah. Along with... Trigonometric? God. Trigonometric. Trigonometric? Yep. Jeez. Okay. Trigonometric parallaxes to gather data about distant stars. What what does that mean, Casper? (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? (laughs) Germans like to use big words, probably. That's what that means. I try to. Um, I so that that work that you're referring to uh, involves measuring the sizes of stars. They're not distant though; uh, they're pretty nearby. So oh, okay. um, we we combine multiple telescopes together to achieve the resolution of one very large telescope. But you know that would be impractical build, to build from both a financial and well gravity really point of view. <laughs> So um, instead of having a 300 meter solid telescope, we use two, you know, multiple telescopes that are two, three, four, two to 300, 330 meters apart from each other, mm-hmm. and you uh, you achieve very high resolution, something like uh, the size of a soccer ball on the moon, something like that. Wow. And if you okay. combine that with the uh, the um, information on how or what the surface temperature of that star is, um, then you can say something about how much energy that star puts out per second. And um, you can characterize it by that and also any planets that may orbit that star if you know how far they are away. That's exciting. The usefulness is that if you know how much energy that planet receives and you have some sort of idea or stipulate a certain kind of um, um, atmosphere on that planet, then you can say something about the temperature on the surface of that planet, if it has a surface. That's awesome. And if there are any aliens there. (laughs) Too, exactly, yeah. (laughs) And uh, Alicia Weinberger, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, did I, uh, I cornered you at AAS, didn't I? I think so. I think Casper might have dragged me over yeah, to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just wanted to know all of your interactions with Vera Rubin. So thank you for, um, you know, <laughs> uh, spending your time to uh, hang out with us and talk about this very cool subject. I know that just reading over your bio, we have a lot of topics here that we could potentially get you on a podcast for I'd happy I'd be happy to come back yeah yes awesome well we'll see wait until your promises for after the episode and see (laughs) yes good point good point um you are a staff scientist for the earth and planets laboratory 
uh, at the Carnegie Insti- Institution for Science. I always want to say laboratory because it yeah. sounds more fun. Um, the laboratory at the Carnegie Institution for Science. Uh, Alicia observes young stars and their disks, the birthplaces of planets, as well as finding and studying planetary systems in order to better understand planets and how they form. That sounds good. But if you want to be really pretentious, it's not a laboratory you go for, it's Carnegie. Oh, okay. (laughs) Carnegie. Makes me think of like Target instead of Target. I almost said Target. (laughs) Target. Oh, man. The the laboratory at Carnegie. Yes. I love Um, that. So that's really cool. How did you get into that? Well, so I always wanted to be an astronomer, but I didn't know what kind of astronomy I wanted to do. And when I was in graduate school, I studied a little bit about young stars, mainly to help out an older graduate student. And I guess that was a good idea since she went on to win the Nobel Prize, although not studying young stars either. Um, and But I mainly studied the centers of active galaxies for my thesis And so it was only as a postdoctoral researcher that I became involved with one of the instruments on the Hubble Space Telescope, which was the new near-infrared camera that had just been installed. And that's a really great set of wavelengths, the near-infrared, and it was a fabulous instrument for looking at the disks around nearby stars and trying to see how they changed over time and how they were sculpted potentially by planets. And I thought that was such an exciting field that I was happy to give up the study of active galaxies to go ahead and study young stars and planetary systems. Cool. That's awesome. Sounds so you got to cool. work with the Hubble? Yeah, so my work as a postdoc was, a lot of it was done with the Hubble Space Telescope with a camera called, and spectrograph called NICMOS. <laughs> That's like Nick Moskowitz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly, although no, no Zs, it was N-I-C-M-O-S. Nice. Oh, okay. Got it. Yes, Nick was a postdoc at Carnegie when we were called the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism before we renamed ourselves the Earth and Planets Laboratory. So, oh, cool. We have another another Carnegie alum. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, and then, of course, we have uh, Vera Rubin's biography, which could literally be an entire book. So we're going to try to summarize and pick out a few pieces. Um, I'm just going to dive right in. If you guys have anything to uh, input, feel free to uh, just jump in. But uh, first off, Dr. Rubin was an American astronomer who pioneered work on galaxy rotation rates. She un- uh, she uncovered the discrepancy between the predicted and observed angular momentum of galaxies by studying galactic rotation curves and uh, identifying the gala- uh, ga- oh my gosh galaxy rotation problem. Her work provided the first evidence for the existence of dark matter, uh, giving her the name, of course, the mother of dark matter. And uh, these, I know, right? Can you imagine having like the mother of dark matter? That's just like the coolest title ever. Um, There are definitely astronomers who would quibble with whether she was the first to provide observational evidence for dark matter. Yeah. Oh, really? There was, of course, Fritz Zwicky. (laughs) Exactly. So there was always a bit of controversy, especially, I think, from the Zwicky family about that. What yeah, was Fritz Zwicky Spill that tea. <laughs> um, we actually used to have a talk about this at, uh, at Lowell and uh, Fritz Zwicky. He was a very interesting man. Um, the story that I was always told when he came up was there was this one time where there was a lot of atmospheric disturbance in his lab or in his observatory. And so to try and like still everything, he fired a gun right next to the telescope to try to like still everything. Um, Did not work, but uh, (laughs) still a cool story. Well, the story I heard is that he was so abrasive that if you wanted to name sandpaper grit after him, the unit of sandpaper grit would have to be the micros wiki because the wiki was too big a unit. My goodness. Is he incredible. from Texas? 
<laughs> shooting guns off in the observatory just sounds Texan. I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Gave me a vibe. Um, but yeah, and um, one of my favorite things when uh, talking about Vera Rubin was uh, – Motivated, motivated by her own battle to gain credibility as a woman in a field dominated by male astronomers, she encouraged girls interested in investigating the universe to pursue their dreams. And uh, throughout her life, she faced discouraging comments on her choice of study, but persevered, supported by her family and her colleagues. And in addition to encouraging women in astronomy, Rubin was a force for greater recognition of women in the sciences and for scientific literacy. Which makes me wonder if the squabbles on who saw dark matter or provided evidence for dark matter first was looped into that. Yeah, I really don't know. I, I will definitely second the idea, though, that she was an amazing mentor for young women. And in fact, I first met her when she was invited to serve on a panel about women in science at the mm. celebration of the 250th anniversary of the founding of the University of Pennsylvania, so a physics professor there, Faye eisenberg Selov, invited her to sit on a panel talking about women in science. And luckily for a young me, she also invited me. I was a junior in college, I guess, to sit on the same panel. So that's oh, wow. how I first met Vera was in the context of an eminent astronomer talking about issues facing women in science. That's so cool. Yeah, um, I also read that she attempted to enroll in a graduate program at Princeton, but she was actually barred due to her gender. And uh, Princeton didn't accept women as astronomy graduate students for 27 more years. That's just insane to me. I agree. It is insane. I think I remember her telling the story as she got a letter back saying that in as much as we do not accept women, your application is not accepted or your application is rejected or something like that. I couldn't agree more with what, what you guys said and what Alicia said, that she was a fantastic mentor for, for women in astronomy. And I think the importance of that is obviously cannot be overstated, but she was really a mentor for everybody. I, I mean, even though I'm not a woman, she was super supportive of everything I did. And I thought that was really terrific. It wasn't, you know, one, one thing only. She was really supportive of, of a lot of people. Sure. She had the, she had that, um, you know, she, she fought for the rights of women in astronomy and because she was so, or probably in light of the fact that she was so discriminated against in her career in astronomy, but it didn't stop there. I was always amazed at how supportive she was and she didn't need to be because she was really famous and, and, uh, you know, extremely accomplished person. And so I was a postdoc when I met her, Alicia was even younger, I guess. And I always thought she was super, super nice. How, how supportive she was of people in the very early stages of their career. And so I, I thought I'd at least add that to the conversation. Yeah. I remember you saying that it was amazing with Vera Rubin specifically that she just felt so genuine and real. Like you felt like you could go up and talk to her about anything despite her status of being the mother of dark yeah. matter. Right. <laughs> That's so cool. I think we have a lot of stories about how humble she was. I don't know if you want to get into that at the I moment. I want every story, every yes. single story. One of my favorites is actually from an occasion where Casper and I were both there. Yeah. In fact, Casper and I had staked out a location to watch the 2004 transit of Venus. Oh, nice. And we had chosen a hillside near the Carnegie campus, which had a nice view of the rising sun. It was an early in the morning, the transit. And I think when we staked it out, you know, maybe a little few weeks before the transit of Venus, it didn't occur to us that lots of other amateur astronomers would have also figured out that this was the place to go watch the transit of Venus. But of course, they did <laughs> figure it out. Right. Yeah. Um, so we we called it the the expedition to the transit of Venus, but it was all of maybe half a mile from our offices. <laughs> and we, we got there early in the morning, and there were a lot of people with their telescopes setting up on the hillside. And we set up our stuff and our colleagues joined us and Vera and her husband, Bob, came and a number of our colleagues, the director of our department, many of the other scientists came. Everyone was very much enjoying themselves. It was a great vibe. We were enjoying the, the transit of Venus. And after 
afterwards, or maybe even during part of the transit, we walked around to see the other telescopes and and the other um, you know amateurs who had set up their equipment on the hillside. And what I really remember is walking around with Vera and having her look through a small telescope, a very beautiful small telescope that someone had set up. And the man who was, you know, whose telescope it was or who was uh, showing people the sun through the telescope was explaining and very mansplaining to her what wow. his telescope was and oh my God. how it was constructed and how big it was and what <sighs> you could see with it. And inside, I was boiling, right? I wanted yeah. to say, do you know who you're talking to? Oh, my God. Right? And I just remember Vera admiring the view through the telescope, complimenting him on it. Probably she commented on how much we were all enjoying this event. And she never said anything that would in any way disclose that she was a famous astronomer or anything <laughs> other than the friendly looking grandmother that she appeared to be. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine the person who like filled him in later? Like, by the way, did you know that you were just talking to Vera Rubin? Well, I know since I'm not as nice as Vera, part of me really hopes somebody filled him in later. Oh my gosh. I feel like they had to have. Like, there's no way that they just let him get away with that, you know? (laughs) Well, I do try to take the lesson of that event to heart. And when I start to explain things to a group of people, ask what their background knowledge is first. Right, right. Yes, honestly. I learned that, if nothing else, from that day of the transit of Venus. Yeah, that's that's a great story, though. Oh, my gosh. What a saint. Um, I, I would have been, I would have been the same as you, Oli been my blood would have been boiling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's easy to do that when someone else is, it's harder if it's yourself, because like, you know, depending on how much pride you have, if you feel comfortable speaking up and correcting somebody on the spot, it can be an awkward position. But when it's, especially when it's someone else, I feel like it's easier to get mad. Yeah. I think so. I don't think that Vera didn't tell him who she was because she was embarrassed about speaking up. I never found her embarrassed about speaking up. (laughs) I think she probably just didn't think it was that important to set him straight. And, you know, she she did get many lovely accolades in her life and and honors for the great work that she had done. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't so egotistical that she needed to rub it in to some random person on a hillside enjoying the transit of Venus that she was with. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's not worth my time. (laughs) That's so funny. I was going to ask you guys, what was Vera like? And I feel like that's a really good example. Do you, do you guys have any more examples? You know, like what was she just like in day-to-day operations? Do you want to jump in Casper? Do you want me to talk about You have no, so many more stories there than I (laughs) You were there for, you you were with her for longer, right? You were there for like 12 or 13 years while she was there. I only, you know, had the privilege of being in the same place with her for three years and I spent a lot of the time in Chile. So I, I remember still a, a number of things, but nowhere near as many as you. But you have to talk about the potluck. Oh, well, I don't know about potluck, but I did have many enjoyable meals with her and <laughs> she, yeah. well, so we can start with the fact that, that the department of terrestrial magnetism in Carnegie had a tradition called lunch club which had been in existence for about 50 years, I think, by the time that I showed up at Carnegie in 2001. And Vera had been a longstanding member. By the time I arrived, she didn't want to cook anymore. So the the way Lunch Club worked is somebody cooked every day. And if you were a member, you just showed up and ate every day at 1230. There was lunch provided to you by one of your colleagues, usually a home-cooked lunch. But then in return for just showing up and eating most days, you had to cook in proportion to the number of days that you ate. And there was no money that exchanged hands. You just ate and cooked. But you weren't allowed to cook hot dogs. (laughs) You were allowed to cook hot dogs, but not more than three times a week. (laughs) So I don't really want to know when that rule or why that rule arose, but long before my time. (laughs) So Vera had cooked for many, many years, although she had stopped by the time I arrived, but it was decided that one could grandfather her in, or I guess the grandmother her in would be a better term. And so she could still continue to eat at lunch club and 
um, you know, enjoy the conversation of her of her colleagues. And actually, in return, she donated money for every meal that she ate, which Carnegie used to support an organization in Washington, D.C. that fed the homeless breakfast every day. Oh, my gosh. Is she the Dolly Parton of astronomy? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Think she, she didn't produce a COVID vaccine, but, you know, she, uh, <laughs> but she, uh, yeah, so Carnegie, for many years, people would go and cook breakfast at this organization called So Others Might Eat. So mm. Others May Eat. So Others Might Eat. I'll have to check. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And some. And, and so she donated money for her lunches that went to buying the eggs and ham and, you know, muffin mix that that Carnegie used to cook breakfast for the homeless. Uh, but anyway, so the great thing is anyone could sit at a table with Vera Rubin every day and have lunch because she was there every day she was at work. She would come over and eat lunch with everybody. And she, you know, it was kind of a tradition of lunch club that you just sat down with whoever was before and after you when you got there. You didn't have reserved seating. You didn't have any kind of hierarchy. And it meant that she was able to chat with anyone who was interested in talking to her. And, you know, the conversations at Lunch Club were about everything. They were about politics. They were about science. They were about people's family lives. You know, you name it. Um, but she well, she was a, an OK cook. I don't think she was a fabulous cook, but but she did. She was wonderful about having people over to her house for meals. So I remember several memorable meals at her house mainly memorable because of the company and the atmosphere, not because of the food. Although I do remember she was particular to um, crock pot meals, like a chicken coca van kind of thing in a crock pot. Um, but That's I remember. Also, yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Right. And she had, you know, she had cooked for four kids and um, I think she knew how to make meals for a lot of people. She and her husband had a house right near Carnegie's campus and it had a very long wooden table with wooden benches on either side. So you can see a lot of people, like a dozen people at the table. But what I also remember is that she had this tiny little kitchen and yet she, you know, she lived in a the house is probably from the 1920s or 30s, as most houses in that neighborhood are. And she had this little tiny kitchen that had never really been upgraded. And I was amazed all the more by all these dinners that she had when some years later, when her husband Bob died, I took over a meal one night for her and her daughter and her daughter's partner who were visiting at the time. And I, you know, I brought over my meal and I was like, you know, I'll just pop this in the microwave to heat it up so we can sit down and eat. And she said, I don't have a microwave. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So she definitely had the seventies appliance of the crock pot, but not the microwave. But <laughs> the other thing I remember is that after dinner, she'd be like, okay, well, let me see if we have any ice cream for dessert. And out of the freezer would come pint after pint after pint of ice cream of different flavors because Vera really loved ice cream. I oh, love that. Too. <laughs> so That's I would like to follow in her footsteps and always make sure I have many pints of different flavored ice creams in my freezer. You never know Honestly. when it's use. Just don't get rid of your microwave, though. <laughs> I know. I'm definitely not getting rid of my microwave. And I have a considerably bigger kitchen than than she had. Um, incredible. So I can chime in for the lunch club here too. I don't know. Yeah. If this is a good spot that here. Was the potluck I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, the lunch club. That was that's what it was, and I I I did that too. I thought it was great. <laughs> it was even though when it was actually your turn to cook, it was uh, it was a lot of work. Like you basically got there in the morning, and you, your morning is no chance you get any work done to get there. Thirty <laughs> people, or you never really knew how many would show up. But Vera would always be there, and it was a very it, it created a very nice collegiate atmosphere, uh, like. Collegial, I suppose, collegial atmosphere when everybody sat there together. And my favorite times at the lunch clubs or lunch club, uh, you know, events was when uh, or when were when after lunch was over, there would be a smaller group. People would go back to work, and Vera would tell stories for mm. a time in Washington. And I, I love that. That was so cool to be with you know this kind of amazing scientist and woman. In, in the room, it was an honor anyway. And then she would tell these stories and it was hilarious. You know, she would talk about, whatever, yeah, this guy, I remember him from, from you know, he's some big shot astronomer in 
somewhere. He's like, yeah, I remember him. He always had that weird way of cheating during the exams. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, worked here and worked there. He was kind of weird. And he would, she would always have these little stories about all the, I don't know, 1960s and 70s astronomers in the Washington DC area. And it was hilarious. And she would tell these stories about how she would go on to, I guess the, um, was it the Naval Observatory where the vice president's resident is now? Is that right, Alicia? Is it the, the Naval yeah, Observatory? Yeah, yeah, U.S. Naval yeah, Observatory, yeah. There was always some astronomy meetings there before the vice president's residence moved there, I guess, and she would always tell stories about how she would hang out there and these late-night parties and stuff. And she had so many cool stories about being in the area and being you know, in astronomy in the 60s and 70s. And it was, I, I thought that was fantastic. So my favorite parts about lunch club when after that, it was only like five or six people. And we would listen to Vera, tell her, tell her stories, kind of like, you know, campfire, <laughs> campfire stories like thing. So I thought that was, that was terrific. The tea of Vera Rubin. I <laughs> would, I would sit there all day. I would not get any work done. I would live for. Yeah, that was, that was really great. Yeah. I have to say, Vera also made a pretty good sponge cake. I remember her bringing one to my house uh, for a dinner where I invited her, and she was the, exactly the sort of good dinner guest who wouldn't come empty-handed. And what was her personality like? Like you said that she was um, not shy about expressing her opinion, uh, she wasn't one that em- em- was embarrassed easily, and she loved ice cream. But what are some other character traits that you remember? Supportive, welcoming Supportive. would be adjectives that come to mind immediately. She was just super nice. She was humble, and uh, I think supportive and welcoming is. Uh, she was. I don't know. She was great. Yeah, I agree with all of that. She was a very warm person. Right? Mm-hmm. She invited us to her home. She had lunch with us. She mm-hmm. came to our homes for events. She would greet my children very warmly if they ever came to work. And she would usually find some little like, gift to give them out of her office. It might just be an Aww. empty tin that they could Aww. put their treasures in or a blank notebook that they could draw in. Um, she was always happy to receive families as well as colleagues. That's incredible. That is so sweet. How did she handle like conflict resolution or like when she had to be tougher? How did she typically handle that in the office? That's an interesting question. I, I So I do remember that when we were hiring a new staff member, we came up with our short list and the director asked us, this was for an astronomer, the director asked us to present our top candidate or two, and then the rest of our, our shortlist. And she wanted the person we hired to be a woman. She didn't think we had enough women on the staff. She was, of course, correct about that. And she, even though could see the merits of the male candidate that was favored by the rest of us, she abstained from the staff vote that um, was made to to hire the person because she, you know, she's known for saying that there's no science that can be done by a man that can't be done by a woman. Mm-hmm. And she thought the time had come to balance the scales better and hire more women onto our staff. And and no matter the merits, I guess of the of the man, she wasn't going to support. Yeah. She wasn't going to throw her weight behind hiring a man. And she made a statement, as I recall, to that effect at the staff meeting in question. Luckily, I don't remember exactly which staff hire this was, so <laughs> I can't <laughs> embarrass one of my colleagues by saying, but um, but she definitely made her point of view known in a very firm but not obnoxious way. That's awesome. Yeah, I never saw her about conflict resolution. I never, I never experienced that side of her. So, yeah, probably a good thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> She's a good letter writer. So, if something irritated her, she would write letters about it. And so, there's some fun oh. letters you can find that were published of hers over the years. Um, but, but I remember in particular that when conferences would be advertised that would have all male organizing committees or all male invited speakers. 
-hmm. nothing incensed her more as far as I knew than that. And she would always write to the conference organizer and say, this is not appropriate. That's amazing. I love that. I can't like, that's such a, a snowball effect because you know, they got a letter from Vera Rubin. They're listening to it. And so of course the next time they might, consider putting more effort into having a a female scientist. Yeah. And I think, you know, through her efforts and probably not hers alone, but now it would be extremely unusual to find a scientific conference program, at least in the United States, that was only male. Yeah, no. As a young woman in STEM, I definitely find her like so inspiring. I mean, the more I hear about her, the more, I don't know. I just, I think she's so cool. Yeah, that's incredible. What was her um, her research like after the dark matter business? Was did she stay there? Is that what she really focused on? Well, she said she always liked to find niches in astronomy where not that many other people were working. And so she didn't feel like she had to be super competitive. She could just explore and follow her curiosity. So actually, the first talk that I remember seeing her give, I mean, not the one about women in science when I was an undergrad, was when I was a graduate student at Caltech. And she gave a talk. And as I recall, it was about polar ring galaxies. It may have been about counter-rotating disk galaxies. I tried to look up today what she was working on at the time, and it seemed to be mostly counter-disk, counter-rotating disk galaxies, although in my memory, the talk was about polar ring galaxies. So anyway, both of those kinds of galaxies really intrigued her, where some of the stars are moving in one direction and some of the stars are moving in another direction. And she recognized, I think quite early on, that these were likely due to merger events, where one galaxy collides with another. Mm-hmm. or interacts with another. And I think she just thought they were really neat and a puzzle, and she wanted to figure out how they worked and what their dynamics were. So the first talk that I saw her give, I think, had nothing to do with dark matter. That was in the early 90s. Okay. Yeah, I think she went into cosmology, too. and I, But I, that's, I mean, to me, that's a that's a normal thing even in, in astronomy, right? As you move on, you find other things, and that's the kind of the privilege to be in astronomy where it's not applied, but fundamental science. And you kind of come up with other ideas maybe that are directly adjacent or maybe that are related or maybe even unrelated. And you, you, you work in different fields. I didn't start out in interferometry, not that I would compare myself to Vera, but I'm just saying, you know, even, even much less famous astronomers kind of move through the field a little bit. So it's very, very, you, you happen, you will see that a lot in astronomy, I think, to move on to other things. I agree. And I think she would definitely have said that she loved to be guided by her curiosity wherever it led. Oh, that's awesome. I know that the you said, you know, that's when she was researching the dark matter. Um, I, I know she worked with some Lowell telescopes. Um, yes, I think that's one of the reasons she was very fond of Lowell is that many of her early observations about dark matter were done on Lowell telescopes. They brought, she and Kent Ford, who had designed the red sensitive image tube spectrograph at DTM, she and Kent observed with it at Lowell, I think before any other, well, I'm not sure if it was the first place they observed with it or not, but yeah, in the autobiography that she wrote for the annual reviews of astronomy and astrophysics, she talks a lot about observing at Lowell and also then schlepping the image tube spectrograph from Lowell down to Kitt Peak and back when they needed to make observations at Kitt Peak. And I think there's the famous picture of her that is often shown is at the Lowell Mm -hmm. Observatory, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, and I got to see this spectrograph that Vera Rubin used uh, during a, uh, whenever we're onboarded at Lowell, we get these kind of like this really cool three hour behind the scenes tour. Um, and oh, that's interesting. So the spectrograph is there? I have a yeah. picture of it on my phone. Yeah. And I think the plan is to do something with it once there's, I don't know if it's a funding thing or what, but. Interesting. Cause there's one at the Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And I thought that was the spectrograph that they had used at Lowell, but, um, but now I don't know what that one was. Haley, there you might, might have been. 
Yeah, there might have been multiple because uh, I know what you're talking about, Cody, in um, the downstairs portion of our old astrograph. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where that instrument is. I don't think it is a spectrograph, though. Oh, um, okay. I know that it is an instrument that Vera worked with. I do not remember exactly what it is, but it went on the astrograph, not the telescope that she was using. So um, it might have been a different type of instrument, but we do have that. And I think the plan is to make a Vera Rubin exhibit at some point, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen um, and what exactly that entails. I will dig up the picture that I took of it because I, I stopped the entire line to like, I took a selfie with it. I took a whole bunch of pictures. Um, but, you know, I, at that point, been working at the observatory for like two weeks. Uh, so yeah. I, I could get that wrong. No, I will, I'd be curious. And the librarian at Carnegie is great about archive photos and might be able to tell us exactly what yeah. he knows about it. We've got yeah. a bunch of photos in our archives as well. They're currently switching over from like a lot of hard copies onto um like an online resource that we can use so there might be something there as well yeah so she says in her autobiography that in august of 1965 i was observing at lowell observatory arizona with kent so that's kent ford using the 69 inch telescope shortly to be replaced by a 72 inch Kent was anxious to test the limits of the image tube, and I was anxious to obtain new information about galaxies. So then she goes on to describe the things that they observed that day. And so I so I was rereading this today in preparation for this podcast, and later in the same paragraph got to something that I found really kind of neat. It was a connection to me that I didn't know about, I guess, or second connect. We obtained image tube spectra of 3 c 33, a radio galaxy, 3C48, a quasi-stellar source, Tonanzintla 256, a blue quasi-stellar galaxy, and the red object in Cygnus discovered by Gary Neugebauer, Dole Martz, and Bob Layton in 1965. Uh, And she goes on to talk about publishing the paper on those objects. And so Gary Neugebauer was my thesis advisor many, many years after this. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. Like, I didn't know that she had followed up one of his early discoveries with the two micron sky survey. So I went to look up her paper and find out what object it was that she was talking about. And it turns out to be a famous low mass star. But um, actually, I'm not sure if it's a low mass star. It's a famous famous, um, low temperature star. And uh, I looked up the paper, and interestingly, in the Simbad astronomical database that we use for looking up individual objects and finding out what's been published on them, her paper, which is called Low Dispersion Image Tube Spectra in the Red, 3C33, 3C48, TON256, and an infrared star, does not appear in the list of publications about that infrared star. Interesting. Um, and ML, um, I've forgotten its number now for something. And um, so anyway, so so one of the things that I did today after I read this article was write to Simbad and tell them that they had missed a reference to that star, which is only the third reference ever. And really, I think the reference that figured out what that star was, um, because they were able to observe what was previously an infrared object in the in the red visible because of this image tube spectrograph. And so I thought it was a neat little curiosity-driven um, experiment that she did where there was like, oh, someone discovered this neat source. Like, let's go look at it while we have our, our cool new spectrograph on the telescope. And then it, you know, was was one of the early papers on on the topic of this source. So it was kind of a fun little voyage of discovery to me today to track down that. That's awesome. Yes. I can tell you're a researcher. Yeah. <laughs> I probably should have been doing my own research and not writing just in bed <laughs> to correct their reference list, but I hope, <laughs> I hope they will collect it and get Ford and Ruben, who don't you know normally appear in reference lists for right. uh, for stars to appear. Well, I mean, following Vera Rubin's footsteps, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you've got a prominent woman included in this research. I'm going to write you a letter. <laughs> um, so I emailed you guys the photo and I did a little like a quick Google lens of it. And it does say that it's a spectrograph, an old style spectrograph. So she uh, must have used multiple at Lowell if there's one at the museum as well. 
Yeah, I sent a note to our historian Kevin and to see like, hey, what? Yeah, it looks like a spectrograph. I mean, the angles when things are bent at funny angles like that, it usually means there's a spectrograph involved. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask our librarian if he knows what the story is behind that one and the one at the Air and Space Museum. Yeah, maybe totally. if we do a uh, some sort of exhibit, we can like partner with you guys um, and see, you know, yeah. if we wanted to yeah. do something together. I have but- kind of a fun personal story about the one in the Air and Space Museum too, because oh. that's that exhibit that it's in is a wonderful exhibit on on astronomy and space science. Oh, at least I hope it's still there when the museum reopens um, this year. Anyway, Mm -hmm. at least it used to be a wonderful exhibit, has an infrared camera in the same room. It has a lot of astronomical artifacts. And so it has a nice display or had a nice display about Vera and a little biography of her next to the spectrograph. And my kids loved that particular exhibit. They loved the whole museum, but in particular, they were a big fan of that exhibit at at the Air and Space Museum. And so we were there one day and they saw this exhibit about Vera. My kids were probably like, you know, it's probably only my older son, actually. So he was probably like four. And he said, wait, that's Vera. And he was (laughs) kind of confused as to why this woman who sometimes we went to her house or sometimes she she came to dinner at our house had her picture in this exhibit. That's so cute. Oh my gosh. I just want to say, like, it occurred to me, we're talking, we're saying things like, you know, spectrograph and dark matter. And we do have podcast episodes that are already about these topics, but it might be good for us. Like, what are these things? So what is dark matter and what does spectrograph help us notice about it? If you can answer that question, you probably get a Nobel Prize. Something good. All right. Matter is matter we can't see. (laughs) Right, it's really right. So dark matter is is matter that is not ordinary, like the stuff that makes up the things all around us, and which interacts by gravity. So it can tug on things the same way normal matter can by gravity, but doesn't interact with light, doesn't emit light, absorb light, or interact the way normal matter does with light. And it's still a hypothesis in the sense that it's the best explanation that exists for some of the phenomena that Vera observed, like the flat rotation curves of galaxies, where the stars in the outer part of the galaxy have a constant velocity, even as you go further and further out. And, you know, she she, she used to say, actually, that every 10 years she would go to a conference on dark matter and someone there would say, oh, in the next 10 years, we'll definitely have discovered the dark matter particle in the lab. <laughs> and 10 years later, they would still be saying, no, no, by the next meeting, 10 years from now, we'll definitely have discovered the dark matter particles. And she was still waiting. If they had discovered the dark matter particle in her lifetime, that probably would have clinched the Nobel Prize for the discoverer and for her. Oh, yeah. But... Um, you know, experiments, as far as I know, still no one has discovered the dark matter particles. Yeah. And is this just like possibly like a place where our physics don't work? Because I know on our podcast, we've talked about potential areas of our universe where physics just our physics don't work. No, That's- I don't think that. I don't I don't. So maybe I would take one step back. And if you want to explain this um, more, you know, uh, for people who don't know much about dark matter, if you if you look at the solar system where most of the mass in the solar system is inside the sun and all the planets orbit the sun and the farther out you go away from the sun, the, sl- the slower the planets move, right? Be- which makes sense. In order for you to be in a stable orbit around something else, you have to compensate for the gravitational attraction by your centrifugal force, by the force that pushes you outside by your orbiting. And only if those two cancel out will you be in a stable orbit around whatever uh, you know center of mass you 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 orbit and so um, if you look at the at spiral galaxies the initial thought was it should be like uh, with the sun where all the mass interior to the orbit of any star would be what pulls them in 
and the centrifugal force is what pushes them out. And so the farther away you would go from the center of the spiral galaxy, the slower the star should move. And what Vera um, um, discovered was that even if you go all the way out to the edges of the spiral galaxy, the stars still move at the same linear velocity, not angular velocity, but linear velocity. And so the, the, um, the, the hypothesis that all the mass that keeps the stars in is, is inside the orbit of the star was not correct. And so there was more mass than initially assumed. And that, that was the dark matter discovery. Zwicky's discovery was different, right? He found that the, the galaxies that orbit the center of mass of the galaxy clusters moved so fast that unless there were more mass inside their orbits, they would fly away. And basically the, the cluster would disband because the centrifugal force would be too far, or the, yeah, the centrifugal force would be too strong. So different kinds, but that's basically where the dark matter came in, in, in those two, since we talked about the other one as well. But Vera's example is there's dark matter that's outside the edges of the galaxy, right? Not so much inside, but outside. So it's kind of a different thing. My, my I don't know, shooting from the hip here, I would say that dark matter consists or the different explanations or, or models for dark matter probably all have some truth to it. So it's going to be a, a composite of multiple different things, small things, large things, you know, particles or undiscovered larger clouds or whatever it is. I don't know. That don't interact with light, but doesn't pretty much everything outside of a black hole interact with light? Well, if it doesn't emit any light and if it's so cold that even in the in the radio or infrared you can't detect it, then unless it obscures light and you no, you notice that, it doesn't interact with anything. And even then it may be so so uh, rarefied, so not dense but rarefied, that it may not have a have a an effect, you know. There's there's a lot of space out there. <laughs> so right. even if it's only a little a little bit here and a little bit there, there's a lot of volume that could hold that. Right. So, so there's there are fundamental particles that have been posited to be the dark matter, and those don't interact with light. But other contributions, as Casper said, to dark matter could be, you know, small planets floating around in space yeah, that yeah. yeah, that that just are so dim that they don't contribute to the overall light from the galaxy that you use to estimate how much regular matter there is. Or even mini black holes, right? People have thought about whether there could be small black holes that are contributing to the mass, but not to the light. But I think I probably everyone thinks... Black holes are everywhere. Like, <laughs> well, I think that everyone thinks there has to be some sort of dark matter particle at this point. Not everyone, but it's a common, a, a popular hypothesis that there has to be a dark matter particle. Yeah, the WIMP, right? The weakly interacting massive yeah. particle. Wimp. But you know, there are other explanations for the motions of the rotation curves of galaxies where people try to say, well, maybe Newtonian gravity isn't the correct explanation of gravity and gravity acts differently on large scales than it acts on small scales. And people are still pursuing that idea, but I think there are some other observations of of where dark matter has to be, for example, from the collisions of galaxies um, that indicate that it's probably a particulate thing and not our lack of our understanding about gravity. But I will say that one of the things that I always admired about Vera's modesty is that she didn't care, I think, what the ultimate explanation for her observations was. She had posited what seems like Occam's razor seems like the most logical explanation that the mass in the galaxy was increasing as you go out. But if it turned out that it was something really new about gravity, something exciting about the universe that nobody knew before, I think she would have been delighted by that. Yeah. She always said that, you know, we think we know so much more than the astronomers of 100 or 400 years ago. And we should expect that the astronomers of 100 or 400 years from now know way more than we do. In fact, in her autobiography, I remember she talked about the increase, the accelerating rate of discoveries every year in astronomy and how exciting that was. So I think as long as there's a neat explanation for dark matter, whether it follows what she hypothesized or something else, she would have been really excited by that. Love that. Oh, and spectrograph, you wanted a definition for too. By the way, that was a very nice definition of dark matter. Thank you, Casper. Yeah. yeah. A spectrograph is an astronomical instrument that breaks light up into its component colors. And the real advantage of being able to look at 
a small set of wavelengths at a time is that when you have a motion, it moves light to the red or to the blue. So if the motion of some particle of gas or a star is away from you, it shifts light to the red. And so if you can measure the exact wavelength of something, you can see then when it shifts to the red or when it's coming toward you, when it shifts to the blue. And so if you want to measure the velocity of a star in the outer part of a galaxy, then you really need to measure whether it's moving away or toward you and exactly how fast. And so the key thing that the spectrograph could do is let you measure the, the motions of stars toward and away from the observer. Yeah, I usually say that it's like a spectrograph gives you like a rainbow barcode because it like tells you what that thing is made of, basically. Um, right. But Vera was really yeah. using it for the velocity. Right. So when I do spectroscopy, I'm usually using it for finding what something is made out of. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's not that Vera wasn't interested in that, I'm sure. But really, she was using it for the velocity information, for yeah. how fast and in what direction were stars moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Cody, that's the Doppler effect. Uh, we've talked about this before. Um I don't know if it was on the podcast or if it was just you and me, but like, um, usually the way I like tell people about this is I relate it to like sound. So like if a car comes by you and it's moving really fast, it's like higher pitched as it comes towards you, but it's lower pitched as it goes away from you. So with light, that's instead of higher pitched, it's blue shifted that those wavelengths are actually physically being compressed and they look bluer. And then as it moves away from you, um, it looks, uh, like redder. Right. Yeah. I think you mentioned something about the James on the James Webb podcast because yeah. the James Webb exclusively, I think, looks at that red light. Uh, that's infrared. So that's like, that's, that's different than what we're talking about. Oh, geez. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm trying my best. I mean, the James Webb has spectrographs on it too. Oh. No matter what wavelength of light you start with, whether it be in the visible or the red or the infrared, it will Doppler shift when yeah. an object's moving away from you. It'll get even redder if it's already red. And when the object is coming towards you, it'll get bluer. Yeah. yeah. I nerd Ooh. out over this stuff. Alicia, Casper, I haven't like fully met you guys yet, but uh, my research was in like optics and I studied stuff with like spectroscopy. So every time it comes up on here, I'm like, yes, let's talk about it. But uh, I, I want to talk more about Vera because like, She's so cool. <laughs> I yeah. love spectroscopy. Believe me, I could also talk to you forever about spectroscopy. Oh, Vera, we Vera would often, <laughs> Vera would often talk about measuring spectra. Mm -hmm. And I think that that term actually dated back to the days when there was a measuring instrument, like a physical heavy metal instrument that let you scan a photographic plate or an image and of a spectrum. And actually measure how much the lines deviate and so therefore what the velocity of the source was. Yeah. Uh, Cody, we talked about this in terms of VM Slifer, uh, Vesto Melvin Slifer, our second director, because he used the Doppler effect as well, but he was studying um, what were thought at the time to be nebulae, clouds of gases and dust out in space. But uh, based off of the velocity he was seeing with this Doppler effect, they had to be other galaxies because they were just moving way too fast to be inside our galaxy. Oh, right. I remember us talking about that now. Yeah. So that that's more along the lines of uh, what we're talking about here. So what did Vera Rubin uh, discover that gave more evidence toward dark matter when she was using these spectrographs? The flat rotation curves, right? The, the aforementioned constant velocities of the stars as they orbit the center of the spiral galaxy. Ah, okay. Got it. And that yes. you do with a spectrograph, so you have an idea about how fast the, they move. Yeah, and they started with the Andromeda Galaxy in the 60s, she and Kent Ford. And this might be a good spot to mention my favorite fact that Haley added to our outline. <laughs> um, the so it's not a galaxy i guess it's a nebula but mm -hmm. um vera rubin has a nebula named after her officially in star trek canon called the verubin nebula 
<laughs> Cody's obsessed with Star Trek. Anytime we can bring it up, she brings it up. <laughs> I, I have to sneak. I have to sneak it in there. I'm excited um, to learn that. I'm going to tell my Trekkie son this when we get done. But I did not know that. Yeah. Yes, the Verubin Nebula in uh, Discovery is um, it's sending a it sends a signal to Starfleet that. Anyway, I won't no spoilers, but it's really cool. I'm super I did not make that connection because I've obviously seen the show and she does um, have some real things named after her too. She yes, has, yeah. she has a ridge. Say. Yeah, she has a ridge on Venus. Mm-hmm. Oh no, sorry, not Venus, Mars. Mars. Yeah. yeah. Ridge, on, a ridge Mars. on Mars named after her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, okay. I actually um I have it in our outline I wanted to bring up. Um, She has a satellite named after her that launched uh, November 2020. And um, she also has the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. Um, And I wanted to get your guys' opinion as like people who knew her. Uh, How do you think she'd feel about like having these really cool things named after her? So I don't know what the Rubin, what's the Rubin satellite? I don't know that one so it's new sat 18 or vera um oh. spar 2020 079k wow. uh, i launched november 6th of 2020 i'm embarrassed to say i didn't know about that the really exciting thing that's coming that is named after her is the vera rubin telescope which is yeah. a big investment by the united states in an observatory to survey the entire sky the observatory is located in chile and it's nearly complete now Oh, yeah. That'd be so cool. Big one, too. So eight meters, right? Alicia, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a big telescope. Oh, wow. Cerro Pachon, right by Cerro Tololo. It's pretty close. I remember seeing the construction site for that. Yeah, how would she feel? She'd be, I think, I mean, Alicia, correct me if you think differently. I think she'd be humble about it. She'd be like, oh, that's cool. You know? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't. I, and I'm, I'm saying this based on, uh, I was going to tell you this little story, too. I remember, and I can't remember the exact name of the university it was, maybe it was Michigan since I went there and I, I told her I was in Michigan. She said, and then she said to me, Oh yeah, Michigan. Yeah. I think I have an honorary doctorate from them. Maybe. Oh. I don't know. There's so many. I can't remember. <laughs> so, you know, she was like, whatever, it's cool. You know, it's nice, but I'm not doing this to get honorary doctorates. And so I think she would, she would uh, react the same way. She'd be like, Oh, okay. That's nice. Where's that telescope? Oh, and she'd, okay. Awesome. That's cool. <laughs> You totally chill about it. I, that what a flex. Nice. What a flex. That's amazing. That I do so think she'd cool. probably want to know about what the telescope could do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I will say that she'd be happy that there was a, more telescopes named after women. Uh, right. So back when the Space Infrared Telescope Facility was still being developed by NASA, they had a naming competition and people could submit their proposed names for the telescope. And And she and I were brainstorming because we really wanted to submit a woman's name for the mm-hmm. telescope, but we were having trouble thinking of someone who was perfectly appropriate. And in the end, we submitted Caroline after Caroline Herschel. Oh, who yeah. I think prior to Vera was the last person to win the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical <laughs> Society of of the United Kingdom. I have to, I'll check that, but anyway, um, and then Vera won it, but, um, anyway, so we submitted Caroline. And so it, that it's what became the Spitzer space telescope. It was not named after a woman in the end. Um, but, but now, and we couldn't submit Herschel as the last name because there already was a Herschel space telescope, but not named after Caroline. So, but now it's exciting, right? There, we we have two new telescopes that are really important that are named for women. One being the ground-based Rubin Telescope, named for Vera, and the other being the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is yes. the next big observatory that NASA will launch. Yes, so excited about that one too. And that's something you guys should know too. Um, so Nancy was a very regular visitor at uh, Nancy Roman was a very regular visitor at Carnegie at DTM at least uh, during the times that I was there. And it was awesome because there was a talk by somebody every week or multiple times a week, and there would always be Vera and Nancy sitting somewhere. And when they raised <laughs> their hands, you better knew what you were talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no pressure. It was really fantastic. So that was that was really cool. And I, I so and without trying to pat myself on the back, but you you said that before, um, trying to describe her uh, adjectives, and I said supportive. Uh, as a, as an answer, I remember when I was a junior postdoc, I don't know, probably like a year into my postdoc at Carnegie, I gave a talk at at Carnegie. We were all 
quote unquote required or at least encouraged to give a talk about our own research. And it was a null result talk, basically, you know, like nothing. You know, it's like you, you're in the middle of the work and you haven't found anything yet, but you described the work that you did. And so it's not that exciting, really. But it, uh, for some reason, it worked really well, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure why, but it maybe my charm. I'm not sure. Anyway, but it worked, <laughs> Very you know? charming. And I, remember, I remember Nancy and Vera being in the audience, and I was like, oh, man, I hope I'm going to get away with this because this could be, be pretty bad. <laughs> and then I was done, and, and uh, you know, as, as people went out, Vera came over, and she said, that was great, and she gave me a hug. And I was like, so I was talking about supportive. So I was like, wow, I'll never forget that. That was so cool. I love that story. And and I'm sure she was genuine because if she didn't like a talk, what she would say is, well, that just goes to show people can get excited about lots of different things. (laughs) (laughs) What a burn. Oh, I'm taking a note of that. (laughs) And shout out to the Veracy Rubin Observatory. I got to hang out with them. For far too long. I definitely neglected my booth duties at AAAS. <laughs> they are so fun and incredible. I spent so much time over there. I was just really excited that they existed. Yeah, it was um, fun. They, did you play their their Find Vera game? They had yes. a mosaic. I found um, four photos of her on the mosaic. Oh, I was just... Good job. I gave I was, up after I found the first one, but... Oh, I was obsessed. I just sat there and stared at these pictures. Um so shout out to the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. And we always love to do shout outs to other observatories on this podcast just mm-hmm. to spread the word. We These places exist and they're amazing. Come visit us. <laughs> so we have time for uh, maybe one more question. And there's a question here that Haley added that is so fascinating and, but we only have like 15 minutes. So, um, I don't know if there's a way to just chat about this really quickly, but, uh, Vera Rubin was Jewish and stated that she saw no conflict with her religion in her career. Uh, so the question was like, do you guys like feel the same or did she talk about her religion very often, uh, in the, the context of research? I don't think she did talk about it often in the context of research. Um, So, so I am Jewish also, and actually we belong to the same synagogue, which is located right next to Carnegie. So it's not a coincidence, right? Literally across the parking lot. So the most convenient place um, that we could both go. And actually it was very funny because there was a new rabbi who came to the synagogue, like, I don't know, in the early 2000s. And she talked about how intimidating it was to be a part of this congregation with so many eminent people. And you can imagine there are lots of Washington lawyers and politicians and stuff. Um, but she actually called out to like an, an eminent astronomers in the congregation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, so so I think, you know, so Vera certainly celebrated Jewish holidays, and I can remember at least one Passover Seder at my house that she came to. She seemed to celebrate Judaism the way that I do, which is um, a great respect for the natural world and a love of tradition and um, not, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it. You know, for me, there's never been a conflict between, you know, being Jewish and and looking using science as a way of looking at the universe. Um, mm-hmm. It just that never comes up for me. And I think, you know, it's OK to have things be mysterious. So I, I don't think that I ever really talked to her about science and religion directly, but I never got a sense that it was a conflict for her either. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love for us to do um, an episode about this with so just some of the scientists at Lowell about, you know, because that's a topic we, we kind of get asked a lot. Uh, you know, we, we never know really how to answer because it's such a personal, like person by person kind of thing, right? Um, when educators are asked those questions, we're encouraged to say, well, in my personal opinion, because like Lowell doesn't really have a stance on that so mm-hmm. yeah 
yeah, I guess the only official stance at Lowell is like everybody can love science, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to tell someone else's story. So you should really get him to tell this story himself, mm-hmm. I guess. But um, the way I remember the story was told by Andy Fruchter, who's a scientist at Space Telescope Science Institute and had been a postdoc at Carnegie with Vera. And he's also Jewish. And he recalled at her retirement celebration, I think, being at Kitt Peak with her around Christmas time. And traditionally, the observatory is shut down at Christmas and the staff have the have the night off. But this was a telescope that they were operating themselves, so they didn't need a staff member to be with them working, and they wanted to work on Christmas. And they were told, no, they, they weren't allowed to work because there was no ambulance driver who could respond in case of an emergency. And Andy's version of the story is that Vera said that if she weren't allowed to work on Christmas, they were going to need that ambulance driver. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like her. But I don't, I don't, we'd have to ask him because I don't remember were they allowed to work on Christmas or not. I suspect they were, but no, no astronomer wants to give up a clear night. (laughs) Well, um, I'm sure we could probably talk about Vera for another three days, but we don't have the time. (laughs) Yeah. So... But thanks for sharing your stories. How amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and we'll have to get you back on, Alicia, so we can talk about spectroscopy because I would love to do that. Yes. <laughs> you might not Good. be able to get me to shut up, so. Uh, Good. Yeah, Perfect. <laughs> Good, because me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, so to all our listeners out there, I would like to remind you that we have a Discord channel and a Twitter where you can see some cool behind the scenes content. Uh, We can definitely drop that picture of Vera Rubin at Lowell Observatory in those areas. Um, And uh, yeah, you can use the hashtag AskStarStuff or shoot a tweet over to uh, to StarStuffPod to ask us any questions that you guys might have about life, the universe, and everything. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming, guys. I had a great time. I hope you did as well. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Great to talk about Vera. Yeah. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening.